knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned, there's not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi and welcome to Theology Gals podcast. I am Colleen Sharp and today is a little bit different. Unfortunately, this week, both myself and my wonderful co-host, Ashley Glassick, um, have been under the weather. All kinds of different viruses and icky stuff going around. And we, we both were not feeling so well this last weekend. And we usually record on Saturday mornings. So we decided it was not going to be a good idea to record. We do have some wonderful podcasts coming up, which I'll mention in a second. Um, I do want to tell you what we do have today for you because I didn't want to skip a week because of the transition off of the Bible Thumping Wing Net Network. We have missed a couple weeks in the last couple of months, and I wanted to be able to bring you something today. So I called my brother-in-law, and I said, I need something for the podcast. And I um, was given permission to play a message from his father. Some of you know his dad, Rod Rosenblatt, from the White Horse Inn radio show with Michael Horton and, and Kim Riddlebarger. And for those of you who are not familiar with Rod, he is a Lutheran and was a longtime host on the White Horse Inn radio show. If you haven't listened to it, definitely look, look that one up because it's excellent. And it's the show that I learned a lot of Reformed theology. I, my husband introduced me to the White Horse Inn in 1994, the, the night that we met, he said, we talked theology all night, and he said, hey, you're going to love this radio show, and I started listening to it, and then later on, uh, Rod's son became my brother-in-law, and I've had him on the podcast. I'll link that also. I'm going to have a few links on the episode notes today. I want to link 1517 Legacy which is the organization that my brother-in-law runs that, that Rod is involved in. And they are a Lutheran organization, but they've got some good stuff over there. We have recommended before the Thinking Fellows podcast. They, they have some excellent episodes, especially if you want to understand Lutheran theology. But they also have ones that I think will be of interest on different reformers and all kinds of topics. So I will link that also. So this is a message from Rod called The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. And there may be some differences as Ashley and I are Presbyterian, we're Reformed in our theology, and Lutherans do have some different views. But the thing that is important in this message 
is the gospel. And one thing he talks about in there, and he even speaks to the Reformed in this, and he, he talks about some of the people that were hurt by the church, that maybe grew up in the church, that were that heard the gospel, but then there was a confusion of law and gospel, similar to what Ashley and I talked about in our law gospel episodes and the importance of distinguishing between the two. And one thing that comes to mind is that I have gotten a couple of notes from women who have said that they grew up in the church and heard the gospel for the very first time on our podcast. And I think that exists out there. And Rod actually refers to a a survey where they asked people who claimed to be Protestants some basic questions about the gospel, and people didn't even know the gospel. You know, they'd been in church their whole lives, and they didn't understand the gospel. They didn't understand that they are sinners in need of a Savior. They did not understand that their only hope is by grace through faith in Christ. I think about somebody that my husband and I knew, and he is with the Lord now, but he grew up in the church, and when we first met him and got to know him, he wanted nothing to do with the church, and he thought that Christianity was all about what you should and should not do. Like he thought that was what Christianity was. Christianity is a list of rules. And he did not understand the gospel. And we began to share the gospel with him. And he had never heard that before. I mean, he knew Jesus died for his sins, but he did not understand what that meant. He did not understand that the law shows us our sin and drives us to Christ and 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 that yes the law the law is good that it does show us how to live as Christians but it's so important to understand where that fits in and to understand the gospel and to always be reminded of the gospel as we continue to struggle with sin as believers. So hopefully this message will be an encouragement and a reminder of that. And just before we go to that, there was a few things that I did want to mention. Uh, We are still working on figuring out some different things now that we've moved off the Bible Thumping Wing Net Network and slowly we will be getting those out. It's just been a lot more work than I anticipated, and a lot of this stuff is very new to me. I've had some people that have been so helpful, and I wanted to mention some of those people. One of those people is um, the people over at Grace Alone Witness Apparel. I will put a link in these episode notes. They do have some of the the best Christian t-shirts that I've seen if you're somebody who likes to wear some of those and they've done something that I think is genius which I absolutely just love and that is they actually have they actually have some tracks that go with their shirts and I when I first heard of this I thought wow how come somebody didn't do this before but I know some of you really like to wear some of those different shirts out there and some of the ones that they have over there you actually come with some tracks and I actually have some of those tracks now when I grew up some of the tracks out there were very corny were not really the best presentation of the gospel but these are first of all the quality is excellent. They're kind of a smaller track that just maybe a little bigger than a business card. It's got two sides to it and it just 
quickly gives the gospel with some scripture references. So do go check them out and some of the stuff that they um, are putting out. Oh, and for my female listeners, they do have some shirts specifically for women. I know some of you like more of a, a ladies cut shirt. So they do have those. And oh, I wanted to mention also, I posted it in the group today, but Andrew Rappaport's show, The Rap Report. Some of you I know had listened to it before. And that's just a daily few minutes long. You know, I today's was about the King James Version of the Bible. Just some historical uh, information on that. But if you're somebody who doesn't have a lot of time to listen to a lot of podcasts, but you got a few minutes a day, definitely go and check out Andrew Rappaport's The Rap Report show. And I think that that is it for this week. I got putting a bunch of links today and... Um, Ashley and I will be back next week. I do want you to know that we do have a lot of episodes planned coming up. I know that we've been doing some more practical topics in the last few weeks. We had done purity culture and we talked about women's roles and we have an episode coming up on education. We also have an interview with a pastor who's written a great book. So we're going to talk a little American church history with him. And then we have some more theological topics we're going to get to because sometimes we focus a little more on the theological with maybe the law gospel episodes. And we have some more that fit into that coming up. And then we have some more practical. And really, the bulk of our episode topics come from our listeners. So if you have something you would like us to talk about on the podcast, email us at theologygals at gmail.com or give us a shout out on Twitter, Facebook, you know, anywhere on social media. And we will consider your topic. Thank you so much for listening, and now here is Rod Rosenblatt and the gospel for those broken by the church. In an age where we can often learn more about what people believe from a hilarious episode of South Park than we can learn from what many churches teach, we offer you tonight's presentation of the gospel for those broken by the church. The first of two nights of presentations by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt and Mr. Craig Parton, Esquire. The format for tonight's presentation will consist of two approximately 45 to 50 minute presentations. First by Dr. Rosenblatt and then the second by Craig Parton. It's my pleasure at this point in time to bring to the podium my friend and mentor, professor of theology and apologetics here at Concordia University, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. Thank you very much. This evening I want to address a particular problem. What a Christian might be able to say in conversation with people who see themselves as alumni of the Christian faith. And of course I'm not referring to those who've been translated by death from what Christians call the church militant into the church triumphant. I mean people we meet or know who say that they once believed that Christ and his shed blood freely justified them before God, God freely forgave all of their sin, freely gave them eternal life, but who add that they no longer believe these things. It seems to me that in the four Gospels, roughly that's biographies of Jesus, virtually every person who rejected Jesus' claims to be God and Messiah, the Savior of the world, went away either sad or mad. First, I'm going to try to deal with today's sad ones, the longing, the having given up on Christianity ones. Second, I want to talk a little bit about the gospel of Christ for today's mad ones, the angry ones. I can't tell you how much it bugs me that there exists such a group as the one called Fundamentalists Anonymous. But there is such a self-help group. If there's any kind of Christian recovery group, I want it to be Liberal Protestants Anonymous, 
or recovering neo-Orthodox Protestants, or Liberation Theology Advocates Anonymous, or Open Theism Recovery Group, you get the idea. For all of its faults, American fundamentalism at least is Christianity of a sort. Yet still, to be perfectly honest, I really can understand why such a group as Fundamentalists Anonymous exists. Maybe you can too. Many of these people about whom or to whom I want to speak tonight are casualties of Bible-believing churches. Some seem to be able to remain in this form of Christianity for years and years, but certainly not all. For some reasons, reasons which I think are very specifiable, more people than we would like to think leave fundamentalist Christianity. I think the same dynamic is often the case with people who belong to what are called the holiness bodies, Wesleyan Christianity. Some are sad about it, some are angry about it. You might say, well, my church is certainly not fundamentalist. I think mine is part of what Newsweek and Time call mainline churches. If that is the case, probably not much that I have to say tonight will be very helpful to you. I'm not going to be talking much about mainline Protestant churches, liberal Lutheran, liberal Presbyterian, Episcopal, for the simple reason that for most of them there isn't enough theology left to make people either sad or mad. Make them convinced that they have to leave or their hearts will break or makes them leave because if they don't, they fear, they fear they will uncork on some shepherd or sheep and get arrested for it. The reason for this is, I think, a relatively simple one. There just isn't enough substantial theology in most mainline Protestant churches to upset anybody. There isn't much of anything left in mainline Protestant sermons or curricula, except maybe lessons in ethics, perhaps new opportunities for social service, as one wag put it, the trouble with theology today is that there isn't any. Many of us have met and talked with the sad alumni of Christianity. And many of us have also met and talked with, with some of the mad alumni of Christianity. The venue may vary, but most of us know or have met men and women who tell us that Christianity once was a part of their life in years past, but that they no longer consciously identify with Jesus Christ in his claim to be God and Savior. Every pastor runs into these people. So do lay people. It seems to go with the territory these days. You and I know them, meet them. You might be one of them. I've run into it in decades of working on the college campus, first with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, later as a professor. In those roles, it has been, I think, for whatever reasons, easier for students to tell me the truth. I think they have said things to me that they were afraid to tell their pastors or priests. I think they have said things to me that uh, were easier to tell a professor, uh, such as you once believed that Jesus was your sin-bearing Savior, but that you no longer believe that, or that you wish you could still believe in Jesus, but it's just intellectually impossible. If you're a Christian pastor or layman, you probably have more than once heard the same thing from friends or acquaintances. In our day, there are so many of these people that it's hard not to come into contact with them. There are thousands of them. First, a few words about the sad alumni. Many of these people were broken by the church. I know that sounds harsh. As Christians, it's bothersome to hear words like that. But for many people, this is how they really see what has happened to them. Now, almost certainly, many of us have also had contact with people who have struggled for their whole lives with being deeply upset psychologically. The church, for whatever reasons, draws people who the professionals recognize as bipolar or wrestling up against what they call clinical depression or whose guilt is so great that they are inwardly immobilized People who are so frightened that just coping day by day is truly heroic. But it's not about any of these people that I'll be speaking tonight. I'm not competent to do so. It seems to me that such people deserve all of the care and empathy that we can muster. But again, it's not about such people that I'm speaking tonight. By the sad alumni of the Christian faith, I mean the hundreds and hundreds whose acquaintance with the Christian church was often one in which they were helped to move from unbelief 
or from a suffocating moralism into real saving faith in Jesus Christ. They heard the preaching of God's law and then heard the announcement of Christ's work on their behalf on the cross. Jesus, the God-man who met the law's demands for them, died for their sin, died to save them, died to give them eternal life. They heard the wonderful message of God's grace in the cross and in the death of Jesus Christ. They heard the astonishing news that God in Jesus Christ died for them, died so that they can be and are freely forgiven based solely on his atoning death. They heard that Christ's blood redeems sinners, buys us out of our self-chosen enslavement. They came to believe that Christianity is not so much about what is in our hearts as much as it is about what's in God's heart. And this proven by Christ's vicarious and atoning death for them and his resurrection three days later, all for their sin. They came to believe that the cross of Christ was their salvation for free and forever. But something happened after that, something that broke them. And in general, I think what happened is nameable, at least in many cases. In my Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, we would speak of it as the confusion of law and gospel. Dr. Charles Mansky, the founding president of Christ College Irvine, used to teach a course in Christianity for freshmen. In that course, he characterized the various churches of Western Christendom this way, Rome Law, Lutheran Law Gospel, Wesleyan Evangelical Law Gospel Law. I think Dr. Mansky was definitely on to something here, and I think it is that third point that results in a lot of sad alumni of Christianity. Now, if you're Lutheran or Reformed, we too have a category that if not done carefully and well, will turn out just as destructive as any Wesleyan, Pentecostal, or Nazarene preaching. I'm referring, of course, to the third use of the law. In Lutheran theology, the content of this third use of the law is spelled out in a section of our Book of Concord, specifically in what we call the Formula of Concord. If you're Reformed, you will recognize this category immediately, recognize it as tracing back to Calvin himself. Two, if I'm correct, in what Calvinist Christians call the three forms of unity, the canons of the Synod of Dort, the Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Confession. If I'm wrong on this one, not being Reformed, I apologize for an inaccurate characteriz characterization of your position. What do we Reformation folk mean by the third use of the law? It claims to be primarily informative, informative for the Christian, and something which fleshes out what is the will of God for me as a Christian day by day. What about the law thundering to us that we are deeply fallen, unable to fix our problem, that we're guilty before a holy God and his holy law, and unless God does something one-sidedly to rescue us, we're without hope, and certainly condemned. That we folk from the Reformation call the second use of the law, the theological use. Luther thought this was the major function of the law in all of the Bible, designed to drive us to despair of our character, our works, our uh, anything, and to drive us to Jesus Christ as the atoning dying lamb substitute for our sin, mine and yours. At any rate, if we Reformation people do the third use of the law badly, we get very close to the infamous application section of the sermon, so common in Wesley, Wesleyan and evangelical preaching. And if we do it badly, the sensitive Christian believer can be driven to a slavery as bad as any slavery done to them by a totalitarian dictator. If the Ten Commandments were not impossible enough, the preaching of Christian behavior of Christian ethics, of Christian living, can drive a Christian into despairing unbelief. Not happy unbelief, tragic, despairing, sad unbelief. It's not unlike the unhappy Christian equivalent of Jack Mormons, those who finally admit to themselves and others that they can't live up to the demands of this non-Christian cult's laws and excuse themselves from the whole shebang. A diet of this stuff from pulpit, from curriculum, from a Christian reading list can do a work on a Christian, at least over the long haul, that is faith-destroying. You might be in just that position this evening. 
Many of us have friends whose story is not a far cry from this. We all regularly rub shoulders with such alumni of the Christian faith, sad that the gospel of Christ didn't, for them at least, deliver the goods. It didn't work. In a Christian context, the mechanism of this can be, I think, a fairly simple one. You come to believe that you've been justified freely because of Christ's cross and blood. Freely, for the sake of Jesus' death and innocent sufferings, God has forgiven your sin, adopted you as a son or daughter, reconciled you to himself, given you the Holy Spirit, and so on. Scripture promises these things. Verses like, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, seem now, at first read, to finally be possible now that you're equipped for it. Or you hear St. Paul as he writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Same thing. You realize that you might have had some excuse for failure when you were a pagan, but that's over. Now you've been made a part of God's family, have become a recipient of a thousand of his free gifts, and then the unexpected. Sin continues to be a part of my life, stubbornly won't allow me to eliminate it the way I expected. Continuing sin on my part seems to be just evidence that I'm not really a believer at all. If I were really a believer, this thing would work. And we start to imagine that we need to be born again again. And often the counsel from non-Reformation churches is that this intuition of ours is true. Try going again to some evangelistic meeting. Accept Christ again. Surrender your will to his again. Sign the card. When the pastor gives the altar call, walk the aisle again. Maybe it didn't take the first time, but it will the second, and so forth. How do I know this one from the inside? You might be able to tell that I don't have to search for words, and you're right. I was brought up in a pietistic Norwegian Lutheran church. For those of you who haven't heard the term pietistic or pietism, it began with certain Lutherans, Arndt and Spainer and others, who wanted a more living Christianity than seemed to be taught and encouraged in their Lutheran parishes in Germany. But it was as close as Lutherans in Germany, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and America ever came to being just like Teutonic or Scandinavian outposts of Biola or Wheaton College. The Reformation emphasis on Christ outside of us, dying for us, and on the justification of sinners gratis was de-emphasized. Baptism and the Lord's Supper were de-emphasized. Instead, the emphasis shifted to the individual's experience of conversion and to the victorious life of the true Christian day by day. If you're interested in this, one of the early first issues of Christian history was devoted to the issue of pietism. It's a far more positive presentation of it than I would give. If you're interested in what I think is a better critical evaluation of it, they are the lectures by Dr. Ron Feuerhahn uh, of the St. Louis uh, Missouri Synod Seminary, and I think his is much more realistic about what this stuff is and the problems it causes. Uh, see me at the break if you want to know it. They're called the Peeper Lectures, and that was in his is in volume three, Pietism and Lutheranism. My church's pietism made an agnostic of me by the time I was a senior in high school. The evangelical parish of your youth might have had the same result in your case. How so? Well, imagine a Sunday school curriculum filled with Bible stories designed to teach a moral point with every lesson. Beware Sunday school curricula. That stuff is dangerous to children. One of the happiest days of my life was the morning when standing in the church narthex my wonderful father delivered me out of Sunday school forever. He had, with a single stroke, delivered me out of the hands of gray-haired women trying to make me more moral using Bible stories to do it. It was like escape from prison. He had again made my life happier. It was not the last time by any measure either. But really it wasn't the fault of those gray-haired Sunday school teachers either. It was the theology they were assigned to teach. It was the curriculum, the content of the lessons that they were assigned to teach to kids, 
such Sunday school material should never have been allowed to make it into our parish. Now, even though I'm not Reformed, and I don't speak Reformed very well, let me see if I can use a couple of categories from the Heidelberg Catechism to guess how you might have had the same dynamic in its problems, at least if it's executed badly. Think of the paradigm guilt, grace, and gratitude. Don't you have the same sort of problems we Lutherans had with pietism, at least where the paradigm is, is executed badly? If I'm elect and regenerate, why is it that my gratitude is so small, so lacking on a daily basis? The hurrier I go, the behinder I get. Or, if I really were elect, my life would certainly reflect that fact more than it does. Maybe I'm just fooling myself. Maybe I'm not really elect. Because the peace, the joy, the confidence, Paul says, the Christian is to have, and that other Reformed believers seem to talk about, I don't have. I'd be lying if I said I did. Maybe I never was part of the elect, and I'm still not. For those of you who are Wesleyans, you're in this mess up to your eyeballs. Wesley's charge to his pastors was very clear. They were called to, one, evangelize pagans, something for which Wesley gets an A in my book, and two, to urge parishioners on to Christian perfection, something for which Wesley would get an F from me, uh, especially the way he executed it. Sunday after Sunday of exhortation, that is, law. If it's of any comfort to you Wesleyans, you can blame us Lutherans for a lot of this stuff. We Lutherans try to blame the Strasbourg Reformed for, the Luth for Lutheran pietism, but I'm not so sure we didn't do it all on our own steam. Through Nicholas von Zinzendorf at Herrenhut and Peter Böhler, we Lutherans bequeathed a lot of this mess of ours to Wesley. I wish I could say it all came from Wesley's reading of the Church Fathers, from reading William Law and others like Law, but I can't. In fact, it was we Lutherans who managed to corrupt all sorts of denominations with this junk. Not just our own Lutheran churches, but all sorts of free churches, the Brothers Wesley, Cotton Mather in the New World. Uh, I can't answer for Jonathan Edwards. He is a total mystery to me. Um, this stuff knew and knows almost no bounds, and almost all of it traces to Lutheran Germany in an earlier century. If this stuff was done to you in some Protestantish church, I apologize to you. We Lutherans might just have been the ones who bequeathed to your denomination, to your pastors, seminary profs, this stuff. If we did, I apologize. Now, for our purposes this evening, the upshot is always the same. Broken ex-Christians who finally despaired of ever being able to live the Christian life as the Bible describes it. <clears throat> so they did what is really a sane thing to do. They left. The way it looks to them is that the message of Christianity broke them on the rack. To put it bluntly, it feels better to have some earthly happiness as a pagan and then be damned than it feels to be trying every day as a Christian to do something that is one continuous failure and then be damned anyway. Trust me on this one. This is how things look. Now, it seems to me that the key question here is a very basic one. Can the cross and blood of Christ save a Christian, failing as he or she is in living the Christian life or not? I hope that most of us would say that the shed blood of Jesus is sufficient to save a sinner. All by itself, just Christ's blood, nude faith in it, sola fide, faith without works, a righteousness from God apart from law, a cross by which God justifies wicked people. That is me and you too. So far so good, right? But is the blood of Christ enough to save a still sinful Christian, or isn't it? Does the gospel still apply even if you are a Christian, or doesn't it? It seems to me, one, that the category sinner still applies to me, two, that the category sinner still applies to you, and three, that the category sinner still applies to all Christians. If you're a Wesleyan and have reached perfection, what I have to say here doesn't, of course, apply to you. We'll give you your money back as you leave. But for the rest of us, it seems that what Luther said of the Christian being simultaneously sinful yet justified before the holy God is critical. 
Is what Luther said biblical or isn't it? Is it biblical to say that a Christian is simul justus et peccator or no? Are we Christians saved the, the same way we were when we were baptized into Christ or when we came to acknowledge Christ's shed blood and his righteousness as all we had in the face of God's holy law? That all of our supposed virtues, Christian or pagan, were just like so many old menstrual garments, to use the biblical phrase? but that God imputes to those who trust Christ's cross the true righteousness of Christ himself, we're pretty sure that unbelievers who come to believe this are instantly justified in God's sight, declared as if innocent, adopted as sons or daughters, forgiven for all sin, given eternal life, etc. But are Christians still saved that freely, or are we not? We're pretty clear that imputed righteousness saves sinners. But can the imputed righteousness of Christ save a Christian? And can it save him or her all by itself or no? I think the way we answer this question determines whether we have anything at all to say to the sad alumni of Christianity. We Lutheran pastors haven't done a great job of getting the, across the central nature of righteousness by imputation alone. I hope you've done a better job of it than we have. Decades ago, a gigantic survey of our clergy and laity across synodical lines, ask somebody else what a sin it is, across synodical lines showed um, that we Lutheran pastors hadn't even convinced our own members of the sufficiency of Christ's cross and blood and death. I mean Lutheran members who might never have sneaked out to attend some revival, might never have spent five minutes watching crazy Trinity broadcasting. The book was called A Study of Generations, and 75% of the laity gave perfect Roman Catholic answers to the questions. When you die, are you sure you will enter heaven? Answer, I hope so. If you do get into heaven, how will you get in? Well, I was president of the congregation four times. My wife and I tried to tithe. For 20 years, we sang in the choir till our voices just couldn't do it anymore. We both taught Sunday school for years perfect Roman Catholic answers. And this survey was decades ago. What the sad alumni need to hear, perhaps for the first time, is that Christian failures are going to walk into heaven, be welcomed into heaven, leap into heaven like a calf leaping out of its stall, laughing and laughing as if it's all too good to be true. It isn't just that we failures will get in, it's that we will probably get in like that. We failures in living the Christian life, as described in the Bible, will probably say something like, you mean it really was that simple? Just Christ's cross and blood? Just his righteousness imputed to my account as if it were mine? You've got to be kidding. And all of heaven is ours just because of what was done by Jesus outside of me, not in me? On the cross, not in my heart? Not in my Christian living? Not in my ethics and my behavior? Well, I'll be damned. But of course, that's the real point, isn't it? As a believer in Jesus, as your substitute, you won't be damned. No believer in Jesus will be, not a single one. As C.S. Lewis put it, there are going to be a lot of surprises at the eschaton. There are going to be people there that we just don't imagine will be there. Think of the non-Israelite that Lewis purposely put in heaven at the end of the last battle. Boy, did that ever get the goat of some Christians. And then he tells him why. He, uh, Aslan, the lion, says to him, I suppose you're wondering why you're here. <laughs> and then he tells him why. Uh, there are going to be in heaven believers in Jesus who never darkened the door of a church. Now that's no encouragement not to intend, not to be baptized, and not to receive the Lord's Supper. It's just saying that faith in Jesus saves. Saves by itself, nude, apart from works. There are going to be scads of Roman Catholics, people who never listened, not really, to the theology preached by their priests, just believed in the sufficiency of Jesus' blood, no matter what their priest was preaching. People of all sorts who just believed in Jesus and his blood shed for their sin as complete payment. There are going to be call girls, there are going to be drug dealers, maybe even a couple of lawyers, though I doubt it. 
there are going to be members of the cults who never got what the cult leader was teaching, but trusted in Jesus' blood and cross, and that it was for their sin and for their hatred of God and for their wickedness. Surprises. Lots of surprises. It bugs me to say it, but there might even be an IRS employee, maybe a congressman or a congresswoman. Everybody has some class of people they don't really want to die as believers in Jesus. Those are mine. But to put it closer to home, there might even be a theologian or two who believed in Jesus. Bet the blue chips on the blood of Jesus and nothing else? Nothing in addition to that blood? There might even be a despicable leftist socialist college professor or two, academics who daily sold out the wonderful American Constitution and instead filled their students' heads with status drivel and mush. In heaven, we will meet cowards, scum, bottom of the barrel, reprehensibles, jerks, deadbeat dads, murderers, all sorts of rabble. And they died believing in Jesus and his blood as their only hope. Ask yourself, is sola fide true or is sola fide not true in the case of failing Christians? Is Paul's letter to the Galatians true or no? And if Galatians is true, and it most certainly is, but an apologia for that is not our subject, can a failing Christian be saved simply by the cross and blood of Christ? Can he or she not be so saved by, by Christ's shed blood alone? If you answer yes, he or she can. That's the message that's gotten lost on most alumni, most Jack Christians, at least the ones I've met. How many times the law has already done its work on them? Boy, has it ever done its work on them. They need more law they, like they need a hole in the head. The law was and is killing them. Now, true, Paul says the law kills. He writes as if that's what the law is for. The law is designed to crush to crush human pride and suppose self-sufficiency toward God, it is intended to kill, designed to kill. Um, the biblical connection is law slash sin. What gives sin its power is the law. And more so, it looks like the law is designed to make the problem even worse. It is to be gasoline on an already blazing fire. Want to have sin run out of control? Go to a church in which the law is preached, then the law is preached again, and more stringently and deeply, and then the law is preached even more. You'll create sin. Think of John Lithgow's portrayal years ago of a law-preaching pastor in the film Footloose. Didn't you just cringe? I mean, even if you're a Southern Baptist, you had to cringe at that character. Drawing the Christian line in the sand at the possibility of a high school dance? Lithgow couldn't listen to his daughter, even if hearing her would have instantly resulted in world peace. Man, was he righteous. In Footloose, Lithgow's wife should have been the pastor. Don't quote me, I could be thrown out of the Missouri Synod for even joking about such a thing. You Missouri Synod Lutherans, that's a joke, chill out. Or as Phil Hendry says in the ad, it wouldn't hurt you to laugh. You non-Lutherans, all of this is an inside joke. Ask your Lutheran friends later why that's a joke in our circles. My point is that the whole film, Footloose, was Jesusless. No cross, no atonement, nothing of Christianity, really. Same as chariots of fire. Completely Christless. Completely gospelless. Now back to the point. For many of the Jack Christians we've met, the law is all their ears have ever heard. For them, the gospel often got lost in a whole bunch of Christian life preaching, and it did them in. So they left. And down deep, there's a sadness in such people that defies description. If you and I don't understand that, we should. They were crestfallen, so great their hopes, so devastating the failure. C.F.W. Walther, um, early guy in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, said that as soon as the law has done its crushing work, the gospel is to be instantly preached or said to such a man or woman. Instantly. Walter said that in the very moment that the pastor senses that the law has done its killing work, he is to placard Christ and his cross and his blood to the trembling, the despairing, and the broken. Be of good cheer, my son, your sins are forgiven. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Fear not, little flock, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he, when he comes, will neither break the bruised reed nor quench the smoldering wick. When you turn, return, remember me. I tell you, this day you shall be with me in paradise. It is finished. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. God made him to be sin who himself knew no sin. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that faith in Jesus, not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And to the man who does not work, but trusts the one who justifies the wicked, his faith is counted as if it were righteousness. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. Knowing a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Secondly, now, let's talk about the ones who are not sad but mad. It's not all that uncommon. I find these angry ones have usually not switched from Christianity to another religion, nor have I found that they switched from one Christian denomination to another. Instead, I find that they are angry at any and all religions and anyone who represents any religious position, but especially Christianity. And that's natural. After all, it was Christianity as they see it that used them up and threw them away. I suppose the most visible examples of this would be men like the late comedian Sam Kinison and ex-Roman Catholic George Carlin. You may and probably do know better contemporary examples than I know. All of us are in the vicinity of people like this at one time or another, maybe know a few of them as friends, or have at least met two or three in passing. Maybe you are one of them. Why do I say that? Because such people are, as I said, not all that uncommon these days. Now, I certainly can't this evening exhaust the dynamic involved in such people. Again, I'm no clinical psychologist. But I think a lot of the mad alumni also have, an, also have a nameable history, just as the sad alumni have one. People like this often speak as if Christianity baited and switched them, just like a used car salesman baits and switches a young couple at a car lot. Christians promised them a new life in Christ in such a way that it was going to be a life of victory, God's designed route to earthly happiness, a new divine power that would solve the problems obsessing them. Then, when the promises didn't seem to work the way they were supposed to, the church put it right back on these believers that they were somehow not doing it right. They weren't reading their Bible enough. They weren't praying enough or praying right. They weren't attending enough church meetings. They weren't making right use of the fellowship. You name the prescription. You fill in the blanks any way you want to. Some pastor or lay layman told them that Christianity was failing them because they weren't doing it right. And often these believers took that counsel to heart and set themselves to trying to do it better or do it right so that it would work. But again, Christianity seemed not to deliver on its promises. It didn't work. As they see it, they gave it every shot and Christianity failed to deliver. And then to boot, they were called guilty for not doing it right. These people feel not just disappointed, they feel betrayed, they feel conned. They feel scammed, and they are deeply angry about it. Or take another example. Those who heard much of Christ and his saving blood and cross in an evangelistic meeting, they became Christians. Then they heard very little of that wonderful message in the week-by-week -week pulpit ministry of their congregation. Instead, they heard recipes as to how to conquer sin over and over and over, or how to have a more intimate marriage or how to raise drug-free kids. Fill it in any way you want. It's law. See, these people often gave up on Christianity, and they are angry, really angry about it. And I don't blame them, really. Nor should you. The church has an obligation to preach the gospel to people on a weekly basis. 
and deep down they somehow knew that. But if that isn't what happens, they react. I would too. After all, what does the church have for a man, a woman, a child, other than Christ and his work on their behalf? Not much. Not compared to the gospel of Christ preached as crucified for them and for their sin, Christ risen from the dead for their justification, not compared to being absolved, not compared to eating the body of Christ given into death for their sin, drinking the blood of Christ shed for their sin. Is there anything we can do that is of genuine help to such angry alumni of Christianity? I think so. And the answer I'm about to give you comes from a guy close to one of those angry ones. From whom? From Sam Kinison's brother. One night I happened to be watching one of those 60 Minutes type shows and it was an, inter an interview with Kinison's brother. After Sam was in an auto accident on a lonely highway near Las Vegas, he lay dying. His brother was cradling Sam's head in his arms as Sam was dying. The interviewer on this 60 Minutes show asked Sam's brother about Sam's hatred of Christ. And his brother looked at the interviewer and said, what? You think that Sam wasn't a Christian believer? You're wrong. Sam died as a believer in Jesus Christ. You'll see Sam in heaven, definitely. Sam was never angry with Jesus. He was angry at the church. And I jumped out of my chair and I yelled, that's it. There it is. There's the answer from Sam Kinison's brother. What did I mean, that's it? We can respond to the angry and say something like, oh, I see. You're not angry at Jesus Christ. You're angry at the church. Boy, join the club. So am I. And so are a whole bunch of other Christians. Now here, if I had time, I would digress on how Christians angry with Christ will be saved by his cross too. But it isn't the subject for tonight. Now this response takes more than a few minutes of thought on our part. That is, am I really ready to say such a thing? And that's not an easy question. For many of us, especially us clergy, this question can be really difficult. Why? Because there's a predictable psychological profile of the clergy, including our closer relationship with our mothers than it was with our fathers. For most of us pastors, the link between Jesus and the church, a mother symbol, is so tight, so identical, that to be angry with mother church is the same as rejecting Jesus. It isn't. But I'm recommending, at least in conversation with the angry, that we, all of us, identify with the anger of these people at the church, and that we say, well, of course you're angry. With what it did to you, it'd be insane not to be angry at it. I just misunderstood. I thought you had dismissed Christ. Thanks for clarifying. Now again, I know this is tough stuff. It raises questions in us that are not easy ones, particularly for us pastors, who were closer to mom than we were to dad. And unfortunately, that's a very high percentage of us. Uh, we're also first sons, 85 to 95% of us. But I recommend that we take the hit. It's not unlike the case with something like the Crusades or the Inquisition. I think most of us don't want to defend everything the church has done in the past. At least I hope we don't. And believe me, the angry alumni are listening closely to see whether we're going to defend the church as much as we defend the gospel. I recommend that we do not defend the church as much as we defend the gospel. I recommend that we immediately cop to horrendous things done by the church. For those of you who are Lutheran, this is not the time to catechize this guy into the finer points of Luther's two kingdoms theory. Now let me illustrate with a couple of particularly embarrassing examples from my own church's history. Believe me, you've got parallels in your church too, if you have one, no matter which one it is. One of the lowest points in Lutheran church history has to do with the Peasants' Revolt and with the persecution of the Anabaptists in the 16th century. The Peasants' Revolt deeply frightened Luther. Luther very much feared anarchy as the worst of possibilities. In a letter to the German princes, Luther ordered them to use the sword and to slash and slay anyone who was out on the streets behaving like a revolutionary. He quickly wrote a letter that appealed to the princes to ignore his first letter, but it was too late. The peasants, thinking that Luther was backing them, were astounded when they learned that Luther had ordered the princes to cut, slash, and kill them. They felt totally betrayed, a real dark chapter in my church's history. In a similar way, 
to the degree to which Anabaptist Christians represented any kind of spirit-given ecclesiastical anarchy, one that had no place for order, Luther unleashed on them too. Lutherans took part in baptizing such people by immersion for 10 minutes. Reformed, <laughs> Reformed and Roman Catholics went along with us in this, but right now I'm just speaking about us. Reprehensible, you bet. Do I want to defend such executions to one of those angry at the... Not a chance. Hated as I might, I need to agree with the person with whom I'm speaking. Same with some of the anti-Semitic things Luther wrote later on in his life. I said that I recommend that we cop to some of the evil things the church has done. We might be tempted to start trying to balance the charges. Mention the wonderful things the church has sometimes done. Um, I recommend against that too at least in an apologetics conversation. Later we can speak about a book like Al Schmidt's uh, late book that catalogs just how the Western world's every corner was affected to the good by historic Christianity, but not at this time. Just let them fire away. But since hearing Kinnison's brother, I don't want to leave the matter there. You and I copying to the evil done by the church still leaves the angry one satisfied sort of justified in his antichristic state and still miles from the gospel. If the law has done its work on him, I want next to talk to this guy about the gospel. I want to talk about Jesus' claims, and if I can, particularly about Jesus' claims regarding what he was going to do for sinners, including me and him, on the cross. Now, you Lutheran pastors, don't talk to me at this point about the scriptural truths he would learn in your pastor's inquirer's class about sacraments. This kind of guy isn't going to come to your inquirer's class to learn about anything, including those. He's too angry. Same for you reform pastors. This is not the time to start talking to this guy about the scriptural tru truths he would learn in your pastor's inquirer's class about the finer points of predestination. He isn't going to come to your inquirer's class. He's too angry. So what am I going to do? I'm going to talk about the gospel as if it can be believed in totally apart from the church. You say to me, Rosenblatt, that isn't how scripture presents the church. I answer, I know, but first things first. This guy needs Christ, Christ as priest, Christ as having bled for his sin, Christ as giving him eternal life for free. And in his mind, the church is what is keeping him or her away from Christ. If he comes to trust Christ and Christ's sin-bearing death, the guy might later on deal with passages about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, but not now. To this guy, the church and its behavior are the scandalon, the scandal. The real scandal, according to Paul, is that we are sinners under condemnation and cannot do anything to make things right with the holy God. The true scandalon in the New Testament is that someone else is going to have to satisfy God's justice for us because we are unable and unwilling to do it. To put it in another way, we sinners are in need of a divine mediator, and without a divine mediator, we are doomed. Scripture says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. At the judgment, the law of God could justly declare us condemned. But the gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he did, didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it on the cross for free for every one of us. If your friend can see for just a moment that the truth of the gospel does not turn on Christ's church, but only on Christ's resurrection from the dead, it might be the first time he's ever thought such a thought. Will he bend his knee to Christ as his lamb and substitute? Who knows? But you will have done him or her a great service. Would that all people who are angry agnostics or atheists were clear that their animosity toward the church for giving them nothing but moralism as soon as they became Christians is really understandable. We would have that same reaction. Believe it or not, that's progress. I've sometimes said to people who reject Christ and his death for their sin, well, you are one of the few I've met who has really rejected the Christian gospel for the right reasons. And congratulations for that. There aren't many of you. But I recommend you keep thinking about it and keep asking the question, 
did, Je did Jesus really rise from the dead the third day or didn't he? Because if he was raised the third day, that is the best reason in the world, in the world to believe that he can make good on his claim that his death was a death for your sin and my sin, and that his cross and blood will be enough for anyone who dies still a sinner. Me, you too. Lastly, we might be surprised to find that this guy or this woman is a Christian. He's just vowed never to let a church do what's been done to him ever, ever again. Do you know a church that won't do that to him again? Don't answer too quickly. There are not a lot of these, no matter what the label on the door and no matter how glitzy. Most of today's churches will just re-inflame his anger, giving him law, gospel, law. Find one for him instead that will speak to him of Christ after he's a believer. And if you don't know one, then tell him that. At least it's honest. Thanks.